So resets are really powerful things. God does resets a lot. You can see that history has been shaped by resets. When Jesus started his earthly ministry at 30, he reset the entire world at the cross. The, 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 the change and, and the, the moment in time was so powerful and so pivotal in the history of the earth that the only way to truly understand the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is to put a marker in time and say that everything else has to be measured by that. When Jesus walked in the earth, one of the primary things that he did is he reset the religious establishment. He reset it to the core. In fact, that reset is part of what took him to the cross. When Martin Luther came onto the scene, he essentially reset the entire church as we know it. Or should I say God reset through him. Now, it wasn't perfect, and it wasn't all-inclusive. But nonetheless, it was a reset. God is in the process right now of resetting the church again. But it's not one Martin Luther's, it's many. And so what we have to discern is to understand that we are in the middle of a great big reset. In, in 2020, I preached a message in Lakeland at Hot FM. And, 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 and the message was essentially this, what in the world is God doing in the church? And at that time, we were in full swing at COVID, and the church as we know it began to change, and most people didn't realize it. Did you know that for the first time, churches all over America didn't have people in them? And what ended up, uh, you know, we were not as blessed as some of the other people that took the opportunity during COVID to get caught up on Netflix binges and all the other stuff. No, his brother had to call conferences right in the middle of a pandemic. I say that kind of funny because they were staring, we were staring an opportunity in the face that everyone seemed to have this sense that something big was changing in the church. And to echo that, I could spend easily the next several hours and I could recount for you survey and study after study that paints a very dire picture for the church in America. Let me give you just one that will blow your mind. The study that was published carried the title, American Christians are redefining the faith. A couple of quotes, rather than transforming the culture around them with biblical truth, the opposite is happening. American Christianity is rapidly conforming to the values of the post-Christian humanistic secular culture. This is church in America. I'm not hating on church. I love his bride. When Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 said, I will build, what he's building is beautiful. But in a lot of cases, it's not really the church. Now, I'll qualify that because I'm not a church hater. I'm not, that, that's not the point of this message. But what I'm telling you is the institution that we've built around the church is failing. The, the, the study goes on to say we're experiencing another ref reformation, but not in a good way. 
Another quote said, unlike the Protestant Reformation, whose goal was to return to the foundational teachings of the Bible, the modern movement is one where Americans are redefining biblical beliefs around secular values. The study proved and showed that among evangelicals, evangelicals are essentially everybody that's not Catholic. And what they basically found out yet, but evangelicals aren't necessarily considered Pentecostal or charismatic. They're, they're believers, but don't have the distinctive of being spirit-filled per se. And so out of that people group, when they studied them, they found out that 52% of evangelicals re reject the absolute moral truth of the Bible. Do you understand that in 52% of evangelical churches, over half of the people going to those churches do not believe that the Bible is absolute moral truth? They said that 61% of the people going to these churches and evangelical churches do not read the Bible on a daily basis. They found out that 75% believe the Bible, that people are, excuse me, 75% believe that people are actually basically good. And they also found out that this study found that one-third, somewhere between one-third and one-half of evangelicals in the survey embrace a variety of beliefs and behaviors that are contrary and oppose biblical teaching. Okay, you're hearing that, but I need you this morning to feel the weight of that. Can I just tell you that church is failing? Okay, so I'm going to give you the bad news first, but I promise we're going to get to some good news. All right? Then they go on to say, well, thank God we have spirit for people because we, we got, we've got that upper edge, you, you know, the evangelicals. We pray in tongues. We, we embrace the life of the spirit. We believe the Lord leads us in everything. We sing in the spirit. Everything we do is in the spirit, right? But then when they pulled those groups of people, you know what they found? It was worse. He said, out of Pentecostals and Charismatics, they actually took secularization a step further. You know what they found? 69% reject the absolute moral truth of the Bible. Folks, 69% of charismatics don't believe the Bible is the absolute moral truth. 54% are unwilling, 54% charismatics, unwilling Pentecostals are unwilling to define human life as sacred with over half of them claiming that the Bible is ambiguous in teaching about abortion okay this isn't a political message but I'm just telling you right now that's what people believe and they've been sitting in church most of their lives we're not talking about young people believing that because they're gone from church. They've already left it. We're talking about the people that have been going to church for years and years and years, yet somehow out of all that time come out with beliefs that are contrary to the Bible. And you know what the biggest uh, clincher of all? 69% prefer, you ready for this? Socialism over capitalism. 
um, a full 45% based on the way they answered all of the questions. This is 45% of Pentecostals and Charismatics. 45% based on the way they answered all the questions could not authentically even be considered to be true believers. That means if we took literally the parable of the virgins, that would essentially mean that if we took that in a literal sense, over half the people going to church are not even saved. And I think it probably is higher than that. Okay, lastly, mainline Protestants are the most secular of the four faith families in the earth. So out of all the big faith groups, Protestants are the most secularized out of all of them. 60% of mainline Protestant beliefs directly conflict with biblical teaching. Three values define this group. Truth and morality are relative. Life has no inherent value or purpose. And so individuals should pursue personal happiness above everything else. And so it's ugly, I know. There is a popular video that was put out by Frontier Alliance International. And in it, they document that the fastest growing church in America is in Iran. It's mostly led by women, and it's almost completely decentralized. Meaning there is no set man at the top who is calling the shots. It's, it's, it's almost like, if I could say it not to just be silly, but it's almost like sleeper cell groups all over Iran that are operating in an underground church, and God is moving powerfully. If you've ever, never had the opportunity to see Sheep Among Wolves or Sheep Among Wolves 2, go home, YouTube it, and get ready, because God's going to rock your world. But in that video, there was one couple in Iran, they were featured at the very beginning, and they're talking about how at the very beginning of the video, now if they break in and they begin to assault you and do terrible things to you, should I renounce my faith to get them to stop or should we let them and, and, and deliver our bodies unto death and remain faithful to Christ? That's a real conversation they're having at the beginning of that video. And then later on in the video, I believe it was the same couple, if I'm not mistaken, they have the opportunity to come to America and to flee the persecution that if you were found meeting or naming Christ in an Islamic state, that you would be put to death or worse, your entire family. And so they had the opportunity to come to America, and as they did that, they began to sort of fall into life, and the husband comes home one day and says, what's wrong? And the wife makes this powerful statement. She said, there's a satanic lullaby here, and I feel myself getting sleepy. We have to go back. And did you know what the, the sort of uh, person who was talking through and narrating the video said it this way? That story was so disturbing because the woman was discerning a threat to her faith that was a greater threat than the kind of persecution that happens in Iran. She saw that the spiritual sleepiness is a greater threat to her faith than persecution was. Folks, that's real. And so why I'm telling you this 
is because while thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans are playing church every week, the enemy is lulling them into a sleepiness and a slumber. And what that's doing essentially is causing people to betray Christ. What God is also doing on the other side, let me tell you just really quickly a few things, and then I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Several years ago, I was having a dream, and in the dream, I found myself in what looked like an elementary school gymnasium slash cafeteria. You've seen those, right? They've got the little tables with like the little round seats that are all attached, and they're made for like little kids. And when I saw it in the dream, the cafeteria was run down. The paint was peeling off the walls. It looked like they hadn't done any kind of upkeep or maintenance in the place in years. And the most oddest thing that I saw was seated at the rows. There must have been 30 or 40 of these little tiny tables were tables full of adults that could barely fit into the seats. They were eating and these little tiny lunch trays that they make, some of you probably have them in your house, they're little tiny things, and you know, you have your little carton of milk in one side of it, and, and it looks so awkward, even with these little kind of kitty forks, and they're trying to eat this food, they don't fit there, and, and everything about it seemed wrong. Yet in the dream, I'm watching myself in the dream, I'm a part of the dream, yet Yet my conscious part of who I am is watching it all unfold like in a TV. And so I began to walk around the rows, and as I'm talking, I say in the group, you know, one Acts, uh, Acts 1.8 says that God is, uh, wants to release power in the earth, and God wants to begin to empower every single believer. So I began to encourage and start teaching. And as I began to walk around the room, eventually I walked to the other side where what I saw and knew in the dream as the pastor and his wife sitting at one of the tables, and he was very irritated and agitated, and finally he stood up and he said, well, I taught you everything I knew about healing and all these other things, but how did you lose it? And then I immediately began to see like this uproar start breaking out in the midst of the people, and, and it's almost like they were saying, wait a minute, we listened to this guy for years, but it's not working what he was telling us in our lives. And it was almost like they felt like they had bought something, but realized they were swindled. And as he did that, he sat back down, and I noticed that puddles of water began to form on the floor. And so I looked up, and I started to see where the ceiling was leaking, and then all of a sudden, I could hear this torrential downpour of rain start to happen, and it was hitting the roof. And the next thing I know, where I was, sit where I was standing next to the pastor and his wife, they, you know, each table sort of was in alignment with a big window on the side of the wall. And all of a sudden, water began to gush into the place and started hitting the table and everything about there. And the pastor's wife goes, it's happening again, like it was nothing, like it was just kind of a usual thing that water's pouring into the house. And in the process of that, I woke up from the dream, and God began to speak to me. 
that most of us have spent our entire lives in elementary school relearning over and over and over again the basic truths that keep us immature and yet the model that it's housed in, the culture that it's housed in is dilapidated, it's unkept, and it can't withstand the weather pressure on the outside and so it's starting to cave in. Now that sounds like a bad dream, but it's actually good news. Because God doesn't want anybody to remain immature and in elementary school. Uh, the writer of Hebrews said, what, do I have to lay again the, fount the basics? Laying on of hands, all that. I mean, you should be well beyond milk now. You should be into the steaks, into the upper, high, higher level types of food. So then what God does is he, um, he begins to raise up and he begins to call for resets out of heaven and that he doesn't all necessarily do it. One of the things that you'll find out about the Lord is is that in order to reach the many, he will always start with the few. The Lord always works in remnants first because it's only smaller groups of people that will give him the yes, but in their yes and the price they pay for that, the larger groups will start to fold into it and they'll start to become a larger movement. That's the way he's always done it. He started with one nation and that one nation has impacted the entire earth, even though that nation rejected him. And the Lord said, at the end of the age, I will demonstrate that I'm God. I will demonstrate my manifold wisdom through the ecclesia, and I will present a nation that rejected me, and they will accept me because I'm God. And so what he does is he begins to work and move. And so last, eight, last October it was, right? Well, actually, if you really want to let me put a little history here. When I was here a year ago, I did some teaching for the um, leadership here, and I did this little cool manual that said, Reset, Moving from Institution to Ecclesia. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about, about that. And then a year or so later into October, the Lord begins to speak to Paul's heart about a reset. And then some people didn't know what to do. I mean, you weren't going to meet for three, week, three weeks. And, well, what do we do, Pastor? Well, ask Jesus. You're saved, right? Ask, isn't that kind of what you said? Ask him what to do. And what I, need to, what I need to help you understand, if you don't already know it already, that when God started the reset, we need to, with sobriety, understand what really happened. So the first thing that took place is essentially what occurred is a line was drawn in the sand and the principalities in the spirit and the spiritual wickedness in high places in this region was put on notice. I was in another city and I was praying and intercede for the purpose of God to come forth in that city and the Lord began to show me this vision that in the distance I could hear these war, war drums being beat. And it was, it was beating to a cadence and to a rhythm. And it was like down in this valley, I could see this long line of people that were chained together at the ankles. They were single file, and they were walking in rhythm to the drum. And as I looked, I realized the Lord showed me that these were all the spiritual leaders in the city. Most of them were pastors of churches. Others were pastors of various types of ministry, and what struck me is so powerful 
as I looked up to the beat of the drums, all of these demonic hosts of wickedness were all around watching this processional go forth. And the, 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 the one beating the drum was one really ugly demon. And what I saw take place was mind-blowing. One pastor suddenly steps out of line and steps out of rhythm and what begins to happen is the whole processional stops and then immediately all of these demonic activity starts happening in the spirit realm and these demons begin to work on all of their friends, all of their peers, all of their church people and stirring up all of this demonic activity because one pastor said, I'm going to step out of the rhythm of the status quo and we're going to have a move of God in this church and immediately the warfare started. And the warfare became so great that their peers were criticizing them, their family was criticizing, church people were leaving, all this kind of stuff was happening. And, and, and the wrestle was so strong that the, the pastor immediately jumped back in line. The line started, the drum started, and it was just as if nothing ever happened. And they were marching on to the same status quo, the same beat. And that, my friends, is what is happening in just about every city in America. Then God raises up people, and then he says, I'm looking for a people that will stop marching to the drumbeat of the demonic world, and that will start living and paying the price to see the kingdom of God come through them and to begin to manifest in the earth in a way through the people of God. Now, we know that there is a physical kingdom coming out of heaven in the future, but right now the kingdom of God is within us, and everywhere we go as we submit to the, the, to the lordship of Christ, we reveal and manifest that kingdom. And so what's happening here at Heart of the Father is, of course, some of you probably didn't realize this, but when the Lord sent you here, you didn't realize what you were getting. What you thought is you were going to get that shepherdy type that was just going to come in and tickle your ears every week and you're just going to kind of make you feel good. Because everybody loves shepherds. They make us feel good all the time. And then every once in a while they'll get onto us and just kind of spank us just a little bit, but nothing too hard to make us mad so that we'll leave the church, right? And so what ends up happening is God in, in the earth is recognizing that at the same time church isn't working, he's raising up a standard because the enemy never wins. It only looks like he does. He may win some small battles, but we win the war every single time. The, there, you understand we already know the outcome. There is no fear or trepidation or any of that stuff because we win. The people of God empowered through the Spirit of God are going to win. Why? Because he's God. That's why. And so what ends up happening is he begins to raise up men and women of God who refuse to march to the drumbeat of American Christianity and who refuse to compromise at the risk and at the cost of being ostracized by everyone else. Now, how many of you have been going through warfare since the reset? Come on, be honest. Can I just tell you good? And I promise you it's going to get worse and it's good for you. I was talking to Taylor and, and, and um, Paul recently, and I said something to them that I really have never said. A lot of times when I start stepping into a prophetic flow, I'll say a lot of stuff that's new to me. And as they're talking, 
I'm, I'm seeing this picture and I'm hearing the words of another preacher that I listened to a couple years ago and he was sharing something metaphorically that was so powerful yet that I knew was 100% true to this situation here. And that is this, if you can consider that when Jesus is on that boat and he's taking a nap, and that storm kicks up, and the chaos of that thunderstorm, how many of you know how, how thunderstorms react or, or how they're formed? It's two opposing forces in nature begin to clash, and a thunderstorm is born, and it's all this chaos in the middle, the wind, the lightning, sometimes hail, sometimes tornadoes, sometimes catastrophic weather events inside of storms. And yet Jesus is sleeping on the boat, and it's as if we could personify that the storm that was full of chaos was coming to Jesus because it needed to be brought into peace. And what God does through an apostolic calling and an assignment is he brings a place of peace. He establishes a place of peace. And then all the storms, all the chaos is attracted to it as if that what's on the house begins to have the anointing to say, peace be stilled. So one of two types of people are drawn to this house. And some are a mixture of both. One type of person is the chaos begging for the storm to be brought to peace. The other is the person who recognizes the power in the house and wants more power. And so what we have to understand, and what I've said to other churches that we've been a part of, is one of the most amazing things that I've seen operate is an entire body of people fail to recognize the spiritual DNA that has been put into the house. And can I tell you that one of the most prominent things that God has put into this house that you all need to cooperate with and understand at a very high spiritual level is that God is pulling chaos this direction, and he's looking to you to speak peace peace to it so can i just tell you one question you should never ask is why why because i'm god why because there's lots of storms out there and as god is and, and through the message of sonship and through paul constantly and taylor talking about orphanhood and getting that that spirit off of us and getting that out of our thinking and many of us are starting to realize that our entire lives we've been programmed by pain but then when you come into a little bit of a refuge like this and there's a house here that's in order and out of that order brings peace into people's lives. The only thing that calms chaos is order. And there's a spiritual order that begins to take place that when you come under the influence of it, and I know that probably sounds like a little cultic teaching here, but it's not because God is a God of order. Paul told Timothy, you go over here, or, or he told one of the apostles, you go and set into things, set into order those things that are lacking. There is an order to what God does. And when that order is finally put into place, what happens is the outflow of that, everyone begins to be brought into peace. That's not ruling over you. That's not heavy-handed leadership. That spiritual order where everybody comes into their function. You know what's out of order in most churches? Is they took the pulpit and they turned you into consumers instead of covenant people. They taught you how to come to church and listen to a message and consume. Man, if I don't like it, oh man, how can we go to Taylor's church? Like, what is all the stuff she's doing up here? We need to go up where they're singing top 40 music and where it's like normal, huh? 
And so what ends up happening, they teach us that if we don't like the religious product that's being offered here, I can run down the street and go find a better product in a better church because after all, I'm paying for it with my tithes, right? And so what ends up happening is there is a place where God is wanting to bring us into resets, but most people just want to play church. And so what, what took place here in October is the line was drawn and immediately the spirit realm in this region was put on notice. And what I believe really happened here, let me tell you a couple of things that I saw in the reset here and then I'll wind this down. We're going to ask you a question this morning. Reset what God is doing right now and maybe the best way to explain this to you is to give you a visual. A few years ago I was telling telling Paul about this, one of the most powerful, prolific dreams, set of dreams that I've ever had. The first one remained perplexing to me for years until the Lord started, started to define it and help me understand it. But in the first one, I was standing in this news station, and it looked like an interior decorator had come in there and done this whole design where everything was white, down to the bookcases, down everything had this, uh, uh, you know, kind of really overtly exaggerated white color everywhere. And I walked up, I saw myself standing in what would have been the weather part of the newsroom. And I'm looking down, there's these men, businessmen in suits. They're looking down at the floor. And as I'm looking over there with them, I see an outline of the United States that's outlined in gold. It's recessed into the floor, and they're looking at this map. We're leaning over it just like this. And then I began to tell the men in the dream, this cloud of ash that's in the air is exactly 32 miles wide and it's moving from the west to the east in America and as I said that like this holographic cloud began to rise like you would see like in, in, in newscasts and it began to move exactly in the middle of the US from California headed to the east coast and as it moved it drew a line right in the middle from the north to the south of the, uh, of the United States and I thought, man, I asked every prophetic person that I knew, and they were coming up with all sorts of crazy stuff. And so finally I just reconciled myself that maybe God, it wasn't really quite time to understand what that meant for, for then, so I sealed it up and I would check back in with God for the next one to two years. Well, we moved to Jacksonville, Florida, in that time frame, and I woke up on a Sunday morning, and I had another dream. And in this dream, I awoke and... And it was an absolute catastrophic uh, destruction that was happening. I looked around me, and it was like an apocalyptic movie where all that you could see was everything was on fire, and there was ash everywhere. And then I saw myself in the dream walk up to a pile of ash that was as tall, if not taller, than I was. And I walked up to the dream and I said, surely out of these ashes, God will raise up a true expression of the apostolic in the earth. And so I spoke to those ashes. And then long into the dream, the next part, I walked up to yet another pile of ashes and did the exact same thing. Surely out of these ashes, God is going to raise up a true expression of the apostolic in the earth. And then a third time, I did the exact same thing. And what I understood in the dream was that each pile of ash was an attempt, a man-made 
attempt to bring forth a spiritual reality before its time and through the arm of the flesh and not as a divine work of God. And so the resulting impact of that was what was produced was tried by fire and was left in ashes. Because anything that we do by the arm of the flesh and our own strength is reduced to ash. It cannot stand the test of eternity. And yet the third time I said it again. So in, in the dream, in a metaphorical sense, three different times, something was tried to produce an expression of the apostolic in the earth that wasn't yet here, that many people knew about, but yet uh, was tried to be produced and brought forth through the arm of the flesh and not the spirit. Yet I woke realizing what I'd seen, that the first dream that I had was out of order, that this was really the first part. The, the first part of the dream was actually the second one. And as the ash was, uh, and I was pointing to the ash, the ash suddenly went up into the atmosphere and a cloud of ash started moving across the west to the east and God started raising up a true apostolic expression in, in the United States. Now, I'm not anybody's judge, and I don't have any type of real national or global authority or anything like that like others do, but I'm going to tell you that what is going to blow your mind is pastortopia is largely over, and God is raising up a true expression of apostolic servants, not power-hungry men meant to enslave you and rule over you and boss you around all the time. But he's raising up apostolic servants who carry a revelation of Jesus Christ and who began to set in order houses where people began to be equipped and empowered and find their place in what God's doing because you were never meant to be a passive consumer spectator on a Sunday morning and all you do is come and watch the show up here. That is not what you're called to. And can I just tell you right now, I've spent 30 years, my wife will tell you right now how I've agonized over the church and how mo much of my life has really been in a lot of, I was, I was listening to, you know, for my own self, that, that I've carried a deep sorrow in my soul over the church. And I heard the Lord saying this morning during Taylor's worship, it's time to come to joy. The, you know, I was at a meeting a few a few weeks ago and, and the gentleman in the meeting was asking us some questions and he said what is your greatest passion and I almost started weeping right there because what's my greatest passion outside of the fact that the sun would be lifted up and that the revelation of the son of God would permeate the earth like the waters cover the sea the knowledge of the glory of the Lord second unto that is that we would get the chance to see what Jesus said he was building in Matthew 16 18 what he said, I will build. And can I tell you that what God is building is beautiful, and it's always a people, not a building. What God is building at our Father's house is beautiful because it's a people, and you'll go from building to building, but it really has nothing to do with the building at all. That there's a community of the Spirit, an ecclesia, not a church, but an ecclesia. And I could, I could go on tang wild tangents on that. But do you know scholars don't even know how we got the word church as a translation for the word ecclesia? Like nobody knows where it came from. I, I've studied and studied and studied and tried to find it. The etymology of the word church has nothing to do with the word meaning of the word ecclesia, which really was a translation of what Jesus would have said in the Hebrew or Aramaic, which was kahal. And you know what it means? An assembly of people. 
They say, well, the church means the called out ones. No, it doesn't. The, the, church, the, the, the word church or ecclesia does not mean the word called out ones. It was a technical term that basically said people who've been called into assembly. It, it, it was a secular term. It wasn't even a, a, a spiritual or a Christian term until we took over that word. And so what Jesus is calling as a people, you get a glimpse of that in Revelations where you start to see, then I saw a great multitude from every tongue, nation, and tribe, a multitude of people, a throng from every culture, from every end of the earth that God has raised up in every generation, and they'll stand before him at the end, and we will all stand up wearing royal robes of righteousness declaring the greatness of God. That's what he's building you're a part of what he's building and so this morning i want to read to you a passage of scripture here and then i'm going to close and then we'll do a couple of more things and um paul am i disappointing or do i need to take a little harder here all right jesus is proclaimed to be the son of god by John the Baptist. By the time we hit Matthew 3, and after fasting for 40 days, I think there was already about 12 verified miracles that, that Jesus had already done. He had already started his public preaching ministry. And yet, by Matthew 11, we see one of the most profound examples of what, what I, what I, I, one of the most mind-bending, mind-blowing things you'll ever see in Scripture. But let me set this up for you. John describes it a little better. So if you want to look at me real quick, you can, or I'll just read it for you. It's up to you. But let's go look at John's account first, and then we're going to jump back to Matthew. Ma John chapter 1, John's greatest theological work that he ever wrote. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that had been created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Now, this is John the Revelator, the same John that was uh, exiled. They tried to boil him alive. That didn't work, so they put him on Patmos, and then he had the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ ever written in the Bible. It's not the revelation of end times. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so then John is talking, and he begins to write this theological work, some of the greatest theology. You'd have to go all the way back to Genesis and study the Old Testament to really get the full picture of what John's saying here. He's writing a testimony so that people would believe that Jesus really was the Christ, and he's using a lot of Hebraic language to do it. We miss it in Western uh, Greek culture America because we don't really want to study the Old Testament anymore. We want to just spend our lives in the new and, and really not understand most of what we're reading because we don't know anything from the old. Okay? And the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. A man came, who? Sent from God, whose name was John. Not John the Revelator, John the Baptist. And what happens? He came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. All right, look at me. What was John's purpose? John says it right here. John the Revelator says it right here. The purpose of John the Baptist was to come and to be a witness to the Christ so that everyone would believe. I didn't make that up. That's right there. Yet, we go on and he say, but yet in verse 7, he came as a witness to testify. Verse 8, he himself was not the light, 
but he came to testify about the light. The true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created by him. See, we don't understand the paradox. I created the world, but now I'm in the world. Right? And so then he goes on to say, he came to what was his own. He made everything. He made everyone. He came to us, and yet we rejected him. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say, he came to what was his own, verse 12, but to all who had received him, to those who believe in his name, he's given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or human desire or human or a husband's decision, but by God. Verse 14, now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory. So that's what the writer's saying. We're not just telling you about it. We're telling you about what we've seen up close and firsthand, we saw it. And then he goes on to say, but um, now the word became flesh. He said, we testified and shouted out John 15. John testified about him and shouted out, this was the one about whom I said, he comes after me is greater than I am because he existed before me. 16, for we have all received from his fullness, one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's essentially saying you got the law, but now you're getting a greater. You're not just getting the law, you're getting grace and truth. And then to wrap it up, he says now in verse 19, now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one you're looking for. And then if you jump down into 23, he says, I'm the voice of the one shouting in the wilderness, make stray the way of the Lord. In 25, he says, they asked John, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ? And then he basically says, I baptize with water among the stands on one whom you do not recognize. Verse 27, he says, but the one coming after me, I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals. Does that sound like to you John knew who Jesus was? Verse 28, on the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Is there any question about who John knew Jesus to be? Yet, fascinatingly enough, if we go into Matthew 11 we see one of the most powerful exchanges in Scripture you will ever see in your life. Matthew describes it very succinctly, and he gets right to the point. In Matthew 11, chapter, verse, chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Now when John heard in prison, why was John in prison? Because he made King Herod mad. He exposed his sin, and he gets thrown into prison. And then what happens next? Now in prison... John hears about the deeds that Christ has done. He starts to hear about the miracles, the verifications that Yeshua is the Christ. And then next, what, what begins to take place, he sends his disciples to Jesus. And in verse 3, John's disciples ask Jesus, are you the one or, we should, or should we look for another? Now, can I ask you, how did John get from Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world to are you the one or should we look for another? In between that statement and that question, a lot of life happened. 
And what Jesus says next is powerful. He says, Jesus answered John's disciple, and he said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So he says it right there. Can I just be a little dramatic here and to say that to the level you carry offense, you will also have a spiritual abortion. That offense is the primary thing that will cause you to abort the revelation of God that you start your walk with. I did not say that. Scripture here reveals that John is sitting in prison and he's thinking to himself. We don't get a, a total glimpse into it, but we can imagine that John's sitting there going, hey, no big deal, my cuz is the savior of the world. Any day now, he's going to come and break me out. Why? Because I'm the forerunner. I'm the one that's come to break, make the crooked path straight. I've got a big job to do in God, and he's not going to let me sit here in this prison. I've got a big job to do in God. I'm called to go to a normal church, not a church, not a not a fellowship like this is on purpose and on mission. I deserve way better than that. And so what ends up happening is John it begins to day by day start to doubt and now he's to the point where he's getting offended and angry that God isn't doing what he wanted him to do by busting him out of prison so he could continue on with his mission of making crooked paths straight to finally he reaches the point where he sends his own disciples to ask Jesus are you the one or should we look for another and then what he says next is just as powerful. He says, blessed are those who are not offended at me. And as he sends those disciples off, verse 7 says, while they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And then he asked the question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? In other words, what did you think you were going to see? Some pomp and circumstance and pageantry announcing that the Son of God is here to redeem Israel and be set up as their king? No, he said, he said instead what I sent to you was... Um, He said, what did you come to see? But instead, what I sent to you was a man in, 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 in wild camel hair, I think it was, eating wild locusts and honey. And so as I began to pray about what the Lord was saying and doing here, and I began to read through this passage, it was as if the Lord flipped the statement. And I'm going to now ask you the same question that John asked Jesus, but it's the Lord asking you this. Are you the one... Or should I look for another? Are you the fellowship? Are you the house that I'm raising up, the house of my own heart? Or should I look for another? Are you going to be the one declaring straight the crooked paths and to become that witness that God is raising up of the risen Christ the one saying in a sense that forerunner John the Baptist ministry of declaring who the Christ is are you going to be the one or should he look for another now I believe you've said in your heart you are going to be the one I believe that what God is doing in this place is that He's offered you a mandate. He's offered you an apostolic assignment. And most of you, if not all of you, are answering that with your yes. Yeah. 
But understand that when you do that, and when you allow the Lord to bring you into the reset, then several things are going to happen, and I really am going to close here. That no longer, when we accept that reset, can we expect to be considered or called a church. Because what God's really building here is a body. What God's really building here is a supernatural body where each one takes its place and the toe doesn't say, God, I'm mad at you or I'm angry at you because you didn't make me a finger. Or the ear didn't say, God, I went to this conference and they said I was a thumb, but um, really I'm just a pinky or maybe just a hair in someone's nostrils, right? So, so we lose the right to to jump into that American culture and do enough of the conferency stuff and enough of all the stuff and we run to this preacher or that prophet or that apostle to tell us something that we're not. And then what we do do is we come into a place and we stop saying that we're going to play church and we're going to allow God to set us into a body where we begin to function. And as you begin to take your place where he sets you, you'll produce the greatest amount of fruit that you ever could by trying to fight God and trying to convince him that you're something that you're not. Is that right? And so what God is building is not the, not the other church down the street. And I'm not talking about an elitist mentality. I'm talking about what, what I'm saying to you is going to cause you to pay a higher price and a wider price and a stiffer price, and there's pain involved in it. But you know what will happen at the end is if you give God your yes and if you really do say, we are the one God, you have to look no further, we really are that body, then what that means is together, God's going to organize you into something that's so supernatural that the world, it will confound the wise. It, it will be the most foolish thing in the world that a people, God is bringing them together, ordering them into a supernatural body where there is no lack because each part of that body is bringing its supply to the whole and there is no lack. The blood flows through the entire width of the whole body. So when we say yes to the reset, what we're essentially doing is we are saying we're not just going to be the typical church anymore. We're going to allow God to order us into that body. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to transfer us out of being the consumer into the shareholder. Now here's the big problem. Some of you may have thought you were coming in here and you were, you were, you were grabbing that new pastor who's going to make you feel good all the time. But here's the problem. Paul's not a pastor. And so in that, what, what, what we thought we were going to get was the Psalm 23, uh, you know, the table for my enemies, and we're, we're kind of, you know, run by the still water and all that kind of stuff. What you got was a lot of warfare and saying, get in line and take your place in the battle. We're doing this thing for Jesus. And so what ends up happening is God is taking us from being a consumer to a shareholder. Now, I don't know if Paul's ever taught on this. But I can tell you the Greek word that we have for fellowship is the, is the word koinonia, and it has a very powerful meaning. It has nothing to do with having dinner parties at your house and talking about sports and throwing a little Jesus. What koinonia is, maybe one of the best English ways to understand that, is koinonia is about being a shareholder. It's not about being a church member. Don't forget about being church members. Become a shareholder. 
And what are shareholders? Shareholders are divine partnerships where, where I, look at, uh, I look at the person sitting next to me and I feel a divine responsibility for their life and for their purpose. I refuse to just simply go to church with people and instead I see the divine connection that God is orchestrating between you and me and together that two or three Christ is in the midst of them and suddenly the two or three become six and eight and 20 and 100 and suddenly you've got a whole house full of people that have been brought together in shareholding relationships and you know what happens when one cries we all cry because there's such a divine connection between all of us that we begin to operate as one it's that same one that jesus talked about in john 17 and 18 where he said father make them one as you and i are one we're not in for unity unity's too low we're out for oneness and so what begins to happen is I stop seeing myself as going to church. I, stop, I, I, I start to realize that what's happening through this ministry here, this apostolic word that goes out all the time, is God is tearing down the consumer mindset in America, and he's rocking my thinking, and he's causing me to come over into new thinking where it's not consumer-minded, you're mission-minded. Every single one of you are missionaries, and that's not just to make you feel good. You are a missionary. You are being called into the purpose of God. You are being called into the mission of God. And together you begin to operate as one body. And if suddenly one part of the body becomes injured, what happens? Blood starts to flow from all the rest of the body to that one injured part and it suddenly begins to be healed. What happens when that chaos starts to come and hit the body, that, that storm starts to come on the horizon? What happens is that the, the, the activity of God starts to permeate the entire body, and by the, torm, by the time the, the storm gets here, the whole body's engaged, and the finger points and says, peace be still, because the entire body's on board. And it's not just Paul and Taylor carrying the spiritual weight of what God's putting in this region. And so we, 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 we learn that as we move together and we become shareholders, what that also means is that I, as I sow into your life, I become a shareholder of your wins. That means when you win, I take a share of that. That means when I win, you take a share of that. That means that, that in order for me to win, you don't have to lose. In order, when we're in the body, we all win. In the body, we don't, we're not in competition. Oh, no, Paul said somebody's name from the pulpit today, but he didn't mention me, and now my orphan's coming out. Oh, no, I'm an orphan, as one guy used to say. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, and, but, but what I'm saying is, is that as one body, everyone has their place. There's an identity in God, and we begin to live for purpose, not to be uh, live for entertainment and to be preached to all the time, 24 hours a day, and suddenly we stop idolizing the pulpit, and we realize that God has called us here to be on mission and on target as one. All right, the last part of that, we leave, and hear me, we leave church culture and we come into kingdom culture. I'm going to say one big thing. There's a million things I could say there. But let me tell you, in church culture, church culture allows you to sit and look at the other person on the room and say, I'm deeply offended at you, and it's okay that I am. Church culture has these weird Facebook memes that say, oh, you're going to new levels, and, and with new levels, you get to leave old relationships behind. Are you kidding me? Those are sons and daughters of God you're talking about. 
And so what, what church culture does is it allows me to bring a lot of secular mindset, humanistic mindsets in the way that I deal with people. And the greatest thing that God has for us isn't about your ministry and your, your anointing and all that great stuff. It's how well you love the people you're connected with in the body. The primary thing is learning how to supernaturally love so that all of the body becomes healthy. And so what we're doing in, in a reset is we're resetting out of all of the old behaviors of church culture and we're realizing that what trumps it all is, is kingdom culture. A man that uh, used to say it this way, we've lost kingdom culture and we don't even know we've lost it. And then... What we also begin to do, and I'm almost done, I probably have two more here. And then he says, we stop focusing on the internal. We stop being inward focused. We stop thinking about just what God's doing at, at our Father's house. And God begins to give us regional, national, and global awareness. A sent one, an apostolos, is one that God gives assignments to, and he sends them on regional, national, and global assignments. And so what ends up happening, as we begin to understand that dynamic, that God doesn't just set people to make you feel good all the time and just preach great messages every week. No, we come into assignments where all of us begin to partner with what God is doing through various groups of people. One brother yesterday was talking about some ministry that they have going on. But suddenly, as we are all one one body, then we begin to start taking on the missions of God and we start partnering with God, what he's doing in a regional level. And we're not just always focused on the few little things that he's doing in one body. The next to the last one is in the reset, we are no longer willing to be managed, but instead we're coming into being missional. You don't need to be managed. You need to be set free to your purpose. You don't need to be controlled and mollycoddled and all this stuff all the time. Of course, God has shepherds that help heal us. That's absolutely part of God's economy. There's no dissing that. We shouldn't be talking down about shepherds. That's really in vogue right now in a lot of circles. Oh, we're tired of pastoral ministry. No, they, they were on the front lines when nobody else was. They, we owe them a debt of gratitude, not our disdain. But at the same time, everybody fits into their role, and we all work together with multiple roles, and suddenly we're stronger than we ever were with just one person leading it through their grace. And so what ends up happening is we don't need to be managed. You don't need to be managed. You need to be equipped and empowered to fulfill your purpose in God, which is primarily as a son and an inheritor, but secondarily, we are to be busy expanding our father's estate. The last thing is that we've got to move, and this is the big week. This is the big one, sorry. We've got to move from this need to incessantly being fed to being equipped and matured. Can you just imagine that if I came over to your house as a 60-year-old and that your wife came over and picked up that fork and started feeding you your dinner? Yet in church, somehow we lose this notion that it's somebody else's responsibility to feed me and not my own. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? Yet every believer that's an authentic Christ follower isn't reading the Bible devotion. You know what's wrong? Is it's not that people aren't having devotions. It's that that's all they're doing is devotions. 
the Bible says you should be a student of the Word. That every single one of us should get into the Word, not to just read it and to pick out something and make it say something about ourselves that we want to hear. We should understand the Jesus of the Scriptures so that we aren't part of those statistics that I read at the very beginning. We need to know the Word of God. We're so full on sermons, and yet you would be hard-pressed to find a deep love for the Word of God in most people's lives because they're so full of what they're getting out of the pulpit every week. I don't have to study the Word. My pastor does it for me, and he preaches it. He spoon-feeds it to me every Sunday. Folks, don't ever leave a church and say to yourself, I'm, not, I'm leaving because I'm not being fed. Good. Right? So I'm just saying to you, don't get that out of your vocabulary. We're in this thing together. And sure, there's a pulpit ministry where revelation is coming out of that pulpit, but that is not meant to be the thing that sustains you. We have to take responsibility and cross over out of this idea that we go to church to be fed, and instead we're joining to a body that's on mission, and at the end of that mission, all of you are going to be able to stand before the Lord, throw down everything that was produced because you lived connected to the vine, and you're able to buy that give jesus the glory that's due to you due to his name stand to your feet